Then is when the trouble started. With Carol and Sue and all the others. I'm an outsider. They hate outsiders. Oh, they're polite enough. That's how they are. You don't know the things they've made me do trying to protect myself. And how ashamed I've been sometimes because of them. You don't know how they are. But you'll find out. And welcome to Sassmouth Dames Podcast, Episode 66. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Harris, an archivist who lives in London. Matt is also a fellow Joan Crawford obsessive. He was here with me for Episode 20 on Flamingo Road that uh, was published two years ago. So, Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Megan. Uh, it's great to be here to talk about my favorite Joan Crawford album. It's one of her most ridiculous, um, kind of like a Tennessee Williams play, without any of the subtlety or the subtlety. Without any of the subtlety. <laughs> so would you say that this is the most camp that Joan gets? It's certainly up there. Um, you know, it's along there with Female on the Beach, um, Harriet Craig. It sits in, I think, quite an interesting period of her career, um, yeah, before Baby Jane, but after her peak at Warner Brothers, where I suppose she, it wasn't really clear what direction she was going in. She wasn't, she wasn't yet the aged hag of uh, stereotype of Trog in Baby Jane, um, so clearly it was still very glamorous. Um, I was surprised that it was your favorite when you told me, because I would have thought something else. But um, I can see probably why, uh, that because this is so enjoyable as, as far as camp goes. But maybe we should start talking about how we think of camp or how we define it, or at least in terms of this picture, apply it to Joan. Yeah, I think our legacy in terms of camp is very interesting. Um, because there's a lot going on there and a lot of disagreement in terms of how that's how that's uh, how that's received um, much of which is obviously distorted um, by mummy dearest and there are a lot of people who love that film who love it ironically perhaps um, and of course a lot of Joan Crawford fans who really really hate it um, for whatever reason they do you know they don't want to hear a word against her, which I understand. So yeah, it's complex. So on Twitter, you had said that camp, um, it's like uh, the Supreme Court judge who said, I know it when I see it. Yeah, because in terms of the definition of camp, I think that's very hard to pin down. I don't know if you can really uh, sum it up in a sentence. 
Um, what I don't agree with is the assumption that camping is bad. This this assumption that by calling something camp, you're inherently making fun of it or degrading it. I don't really believe that's the case. I would argue that films like Sunset Boulevard can be, or whatever happened to Baby Jane, are camp. That doesn't take anything away from how brilliant they are. I would agree that camp doesn't necessarily mean that something's bad. The way I tend to, um, you know, I'm not an expert on camp, but the way I always think about it is in some kind of parallel to the idea of uh, irony in the in the figurative or literary sense, which is that there's this kind of slippage between the literal and the intended meaning. And I see that a lot here in Queen Bee. So on the surface, this picture tells us she's evil and she deserves to die. Um, and that's one reading. And that certainly satisfies the Hayes, the Hayes Code and Joseph Breen and the production code. But then on the other level is that any, I think, um, rational person would not say that Eva Phillips is really evil or deserves to die, that she's really who we root for in the picture. And she's fabulous and really in serving back to a bunch of spoiled rich people what they have coming to them or what they deserve. So that's the pleasure I get in it, in that in order for this picture to be made, it had to punish Eva Phillips as Joan Crawford plays her. Um, but we take great pleasure in what she does on screen. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's obviously her film. And you're right, it feels like it's framed in such a way that we're supposed to hate her. But how can you? She's so much fun. She looks so great. She's, she's horrible to everyone around her. But at the same time, you feel like life has been quite tough towards her. Um... Yeah, I mean, she does a lot more uh, emotionally complex things than just tough off bitchy one-liners to say Carol about how sweet she looks even in her old tacky riding clothes. That we see vulnerable sides to Eva Phillips where she talks about her loneliness with, um, you know, Jenny Stewart, uh, played by uh, Lucy Marlowe, or when she's talking about what they've done to her as the opening clip talks about when she's smashing all the tacky stuff in Carol's room. Um, so we do see, you know, she's she's more complex than just, you know, an arch camp figure. Oh, for sure. So what are your favorite, some of the things that make you return to this over and over? Some, whether it's dialogue or scenes or reactions or what have you. Well, there's a scene where John Ireland says to her, whatever you are, Eva, you're on wheels. And you can really say that about Joan in this film. She is just ratcheted up to 110. Um, it is camp seeing her you know, smash up the items in the bedroom, um, just being horrible to everyone to, to a ludicrous extreme. Um, and she looks great in all those gowns by Jean-Louis. Uh, she's, but at the same time, she's very severe in this period of her life. Um, her hair was shorter. She had the really big eyebrows that you know, drag queens do when they, whenever they do a Joan Crawford. Um, so there's a real extreme of femininity mixed with, I suppose, a kind of mannishness. And I don't say that in an insulting way. I think she looks great. 
Um, and I don't mean that ironically. You know, I really do think she's wonderful in this. And it's just fun, you know. No, she does look really good. For me, the, one of the things that I think about the most and I returned to and that really made my jaw drop was the painting, the Eric Haupt painting that hangs over the mantle in, uh, you know, the, the parlor. Um, and I, I like it for so many reasons, because one, it was a real painting done by an artist. And there was an identical one done of uh, her husband, her first husband, Doug Jr., who I know you think is her best husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, she, I love it because it's like Joan says, I have the receipts with this this portrait. I mean, she's not dressed in a glamour gown or, you know, dripping in jewels or anything. She's so simple and pared back. And she looks really like some horsey rich woman, you know, someone who is of the manor born, who is in, of inherited wealth. But, you know, that, that position or pose is something she um, sort of aspired to of of having that haughty air at such a young age in 1931 when that was painted. But I love that painting so much. It says, um, you know, here's my alibi. Here's my backstory. Here's my get out of jail free card. This painting says, I am the work of art. I'm Joan Crawford and I contain multitudes. And I just love the way she swans around and stands in front of it and poses in front of it. It's like, don't forget, bitches, this was me and I'm better than all of you. And I love it. Yeah, but there's definitely a conflict with her character in terms of her background, which I suppose is true in a lot of films where uh, I suppose she's a social climber, if it's fair to say that. She's certainly ambitious. It's a shame that she settled for so little for people who didn't really deserve her. I mean, everyone's so boring. They don't seem to have a life outside the house. I mean, Avery hardly even leaves his bedroom. Um, Yeah, it's a bit of a quarantine appropriate film. (laughs) They really do stay in the house the entire time, except at the end when she dies. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. They're all very boring people, um, and it doesn't make any sense that they would choose to live together, since they all seem to hate each other so bitterly. But that that part of um, dramatic or theatrical hate of your family is very Southern Gothic, isn't it? Like, we're all stuck here. We're all going to die, you know, miserable together. We're bound, uh, you know, fated to make each other miserable until we die. I mean, the whole bit about the bracelet, you know, like <laughs> you're getting ready. You're planning a murder suicide. And so you go out and buy her heart's desire. And then he says, now you can die happy. And she just replies, what an odd thing to say. She's barely even looking at him, though, at Barry Sullivan. She's looking at that bracelet. And who could blame her? Um, I guess it's Sapphire. Is that right? Star Sapphire. It's a great bracelet. (laughs) So what about beauty? (laughs) From the minute that, you know, um, Jenny Stewart walks in, he's right in her face, like waiting for her reaction to his scar. Yeah, he's so intense um, and definitely a very tragic figure in this film. He's very unhappy and she makes his life a misery. Um, But, you know, he loves his kids. There's that. 
Well, the odd thing about that is, you know, not to pick apart the plot, but supposedly they hadn't been together sexually in a very long time, and yet they have two young children. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Probably can't overthink. (laughs) Probably not. But, you know, when he's, you know, he's waiting for uh, Jenny to gasp at his face, I think he just looks better looking with the scar. Like, it does something for him. I I mean, I think Barry Sullivan's a babe, and the scar looks good on him, you know? It gives him some character. Yeah, I think he's better looking than John Ireland, to be fair. Yeah, he has a little bit more um, emotional range on his face. Like, his reactions are better, too. John Ireland's kind of, you know, a little cardboard there. But yeah, so Joan in her book with Roy Newquist was asked about this film and talked about having the chance to play a total bitch, which is funny because she had done that before. But of course, this version is so extreme uh, (laughs) that you can see why that was how she remembered it and said that she ended up hating herself, that the film was a total downer, uh, that she was glad the character died. Of course, Joan wasn't always a great judge of her own work or necessarily her own characters, but uh, what do you feel about her view of it, that, you know, she hated the character? Well, I, you know, I think it would be very difficult for her to be um, even playing a character that is openly disliked by everybody in a cast. Do you know? So I think that probably took an emotional toll on her. But, you know, at some point I'm thinking she's shacking up with Al Steele at this point and she's shagging John Ireland. So maybe it wasn't all that, like, you know, difficult for her to play this role. I I mean, she certainly had her preoccupations. Yeah, I've read elsewhere that the cast, the other rest of the cast were quite stiff and awkward because they hated her and they confused her character a bit with uh, with the person, which I'm not sure I entirely buy given, you know, she was famously lovely to everyone on set. Uh, Although, of course, Christina Crawford, uh, as much as some people won't like me bringing her up, famously said in her book, Mommy Dearest, that that she hated the film Queen Bee, uh, that what she saw of Joan in that film wasn't acting, but that was exactly how Joan was at home. Um, And that may explain why staircase in the film the big southern gothic staircase that she comes down at the end it was actually used in the film mummy dearest because joan didn't have a big staircase like that in her real house but in mummy dearest they're really camping it up they're creating a version of joan crawford uh, a campy exaggerated version as seen through her films which was why christina hated it or hated the film mummy dearest but it's why Joan should have had a staircase like that because she looks fabulous on it. Yes. <laughs> um, wouldn't we all like a staircase like that to make an entrance? But, um, but yeah, it's interesting that her most extreme character, as it were, is the one that was that was used to create the character, the caricature of Joan that is unfortunately all that many people know now. That is unfortunate. But, I mean, she has a lot of dimension, again, that she's playing with people and she is, you know, the sort of spider woman that draws people into her web. 
and they don't see, you know, how many layers she's playing them on. I mean, she's got everybody sort of working for her to some degree, like even the nanny, Mrs. Breen, who's a really unsavory character beating up the children and stuff. She's wholly loyal to Eva and is eavesdropping and reporting back to her. So she's got all of her little worker bees working for her um, to some extent. You know, I mean, here is uh, her cousin, Jenny Stewart, and she's like, oh, run my bath and bring me my breakfast and, you know, maybe some other things as well. Yeah, she's very manipulative, but of course it doesn't work out in the end. She overplays her hand pretty heavily and, uh, yeah, it doesn't end well for anyone. Well, at least she died wearing that bracelet and that gorgeous gown, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, have, if you have to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's funny, too, because um, I, it's in one of the, I think it's in Donald Spotto's book, where he talks about um, John Ireland's um, unpublished memoir, where he talks about his affair with Joan. Um, about how she was so erotic and every time was like the first time. And, um, you know, that kind of passion that he supposedly had with her, I don't really see it from on screen, which is too bad. But, um, you know, that um, she is kind of living her character in, in multiple ways, I guess, um, sexually toying with people as well. Yeah, she moves through the house like it's hers, which it is. Um, and everyone else just exists as a secondary character around her. <laughs> there for her to play with and for to, to tell them what to do. When she's talking about the doctor, and she's like, oh, you'd think he never saw a beautiful woman before. And, and Jenny says, no, what did he say about, you know, the boy? <laughs> Not about you, Eva. <laughs> Um, there's a, you know, that bracelet is great, but the other piece of jewelry that I really um, uh, delighted in was the scene where she's trashing the um, bad bedroom of Carol's and she's wearing this little swan brooch. So even though she's saying, you know, oh, they've treated me so poorly and they're awful people and they think I'm no good because I'm not from the South, I'm not one of them and I, I'm an outsider. She's always telling you that she's, you know, sort of risen above it and she's blossomed into the swan, you know, who has beautiful clothes and, uh, uh, you know, fabulous boudoir and all of that. So these subtle little hints that we get about characterization are, are always there. And I, I hope, she, you know, she played some hand in that. I know, um, you know, she had a costume and jewelry approval written into her contract. So... I'd, I'd probably think she had something to do with that choice. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, she certainly had costume and jewelry approval for all her films by this point, I imagine. Uh, I can't imagine she would have done it looking bad. And so Joan bought the rights for um, Edna Lee's uh, novel and then rolled it into a, a deal where she sold it to Harry Cohn in Columbia. And so she had a three picture deal there. So this was her first in Columbia. So what kind of, um, 
you know, what are the Columbia pictures uh, that are, you know, what makes them different from, say, her Warners or her MGM, do you think, style-wise or content-wise? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the Columbia films weren't so high budget. Um, I suppose they were a bit more simple. Uh, Female on a Beach, sorry, Female on the Beach, uh, which was made the same year. It's a fairly straightforward film. It's almost noirish. Uh, she still looks great, but clearly there isn't the massive high glamour that you would expect from one of her MGM films. Um, I think it's an interesting period of her film career that tends to get overlooked between the more obvious success of her Warner Brothers period and the the campier, I suppose, but generally less rewarding period in the 60s. It's that she commands so much attention in every scene that you don't really notice anybody else or even the settings. I mean, uh, I watched this three times to prepare for the episode, and it wasn't until the third time that I even noticed things like the louvered uh, blinds all over the place creating shadows or the, you know, um, intricate wrought iron uh you know detail work in the banisters and the railings and stuff i mean because i'm just not looking at any of that when joan's on the screen i'm looking at her yeah for sure she dominates uh even this very very beautiful house So the men are bitter and ballless, and the women are super delicate. Let's talk about the other women that, um, you know, sort of are compared to or face off with Joan in this. Yeah, I mean, Betsy Palmer, I suppose, is the one who has the most personality. Uh, she tries to have a little bit of independence from Joan, but of course is ground down and ultimately kills herself. Um, Betsy Palmer's quite interesting because she, of course, played the mother in Friday the 13th, another iconic horror film. So she has that like, in common with Joan that they both went to horror later in life. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, Faye Ray, of course, is in this too, um, though in a small role. And she's really already been ruined by Eva. Uh, she's already confused and you know a sad broken person um you know the women in the film they're not there to be friends with joan they're there for her to destroy really <laughs> but i mean it's it's so ridiculous on one level that you know fay ray is this miss havisham who can't even look at eva in the face it's like she doesn't even exist because what she lost this man who turned out to be a bitter alcoholic who hides in his bedroom all day. <laughs> like, I, I think he dodged a bullet there, sister. Yeah. And, you know, Carol is great. As you say, she's got that great speech about she'll sting you one day and, you know, oh, the book on the bees, go and read it. <laughs> you know, like you have to read a, a, book, a book on bees to understand Joan Crawford. I mean, come on, we get the metaphor. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that she just completely loses it and hangs herself because some guy she's going to marry had slept with Joan 10 years ago. I mean, 
10 years ago, she dumped the guy and married Avery. Like, isn't that what most Southern Bells did anyway? Yeah, I wouldn't want to pick the plot apart too much, but uh, it is absurd. And again, there's no indication they can just leave. I mean, no one's forcing them to live together. <laughs> people who hate each other in the same house, but... Yeah. And the kids are pretty awful, too. I mean, you know. Oh, now I know how it ends. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, the kids are annoying. But, again, they're there in the background. The kids don't have any real character in this film. So um, one of the things that, you know, when you read it, I'm sure you've come across this yourself. When you read reviews of Queen Bee, almost every review has some comment about what's ridiculous is that Joan is playing this at her age. So, you know, she's anywhere from, what, 49 to early 50s, depending on what date you take. I'm going with 49, you know, that she was born in 1906. I don't know if you go with that, but how would you respond to those, um, that sort of commentary, which is, you know, anywhere from the late 40s on, that's all you read about when you read about Joan and film? Well, it's absurd, really, because she does look incredible. Uh, She doesn't look 50. I mean, even if she did, that's fine. Um, The character is a mother with two kids. Um, you know, there's always so much comment on women's age, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, her waist is so small, her arms are so toned, her shoulders look fabulous. Well, I was thinking about this especially because um, the other week I was watching um, Cagney in um, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. When he made that in 1950, he was 51. And I read a bunch of reviews of that, and nobody said one word about his age. And in that picture, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, he has two love interests. One of them is Barbara Payton. Many people say that's her best film role. And she was 23 years old in that. So she's being romanced by, you know, James Cagney, who's old enough to be her father. And then another actor in there, uh, in that picture, Helena Carter, she's 30 and she plays this other love interest and not a word. I couldn't find anybody who remarked on Cagney saying he's too old for this or that he shouldn't be, you know, with these two young women. And, you know, they have a lot of the same things in common where Joan is playing the bitch that she would have played in the 30s. Um, just like in this picture where he's playing a, you know, a, a gangster who makes a jailbreak and then goes on a, a spree of robberies um, in this town that, you know, that's his Tom Powers insignia from the 30s. And he's still trying to be this tough guy, like the same character when he's clearly, you know, up there in years. So I just think, gosh, you know, the double standards, you just can't shake them. They're everywhere. And it, it just boils my blood. Yeah, I mean, John Ireland and Barry Sullivan were both slightly younger than Joan, but you wouldn't guess that watching the film. They look older. Especially a Barry Sullivan. I don't know if that uh, gray hair was added or, you know, if it was just naturally kind of salt and pepper, but he certainly doesn't look too young for Joan. Oh, no. 
So Jones jewels were worth a hundred thousand dollars. Apparently, did you? I'm sure you saw that in the in the books. Uh, no, I missed that. Uh, which book was that? Um. Well. Um. Actually, uh, I'm taking it from a picture. So the Roiser of Beverly Hills. There's nice. a picture of Joan like standing in front of all of her jewels, looking like, "Oh, is this for me?" <laughs> you know, um, surveying her spoils. Um, so yeah, it was a hundred thousand dollars worth. Yeah, no costume jewelry for Joan. No, absolutely not. You can skimp on the other things, but not on her stuff. Um. Yeah, the other women in the film, they, I just, I'm trying to think, but they really don't get any jewellery. Um, of course, uh, what's her name, the younger one, has that horrible flower that Joan pins on her and all takes off and says, nobody wears these anymore. Right, because she knows clearly better than this girl. From when we first see Jenny Palmer and she's on their sort of their doorstep, and we know that she's a professional virgin because she keeps putting her hand at her throat, like to clutch imaginary pearls that aren't there. But it's telling us, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so young and innocent. And then, you know, she's not there pretty long before she's making out with Barry Sullivan. <laughs> so, you know, she's she's not really a great person. <laughs> she's not really a nice girl. Um, But yeah, so I mean, all of these people are saying that she's so awful, Eva, but what are they doing? Planning a murder, suicide, planning to steal her husband. Uh, you know, John Ireland's, he's planning to kill her as well. I mean. Do any of them have jobs? <laughs> well, I guess John, John Ireland does. Uh, he's running the plant for Avery or something. But we don't hear much about it. No, certainly not. But um, so when Joan dresses her up for her big date and says, uh, as you um, just mentioned, uh, nobody wears these anymore. She like tidies up her decolletage and she pins on the, you know, her smart, you know, fur stole and everything and sends her out like she's her little doll that she dresses up or something. Yeah, she's very patronizing. Uh, I love the line. Be nice. Make conversation with people. Uh, have some personality. It's just, yeah, it's a read. <laughs> when she tells her later, we're going to have to put a bell around your neck or something. Um, don't be sneaky. Don't try and spy on me. And then I think there's something else that redeems Eva is that when Barry Sullivan starts being nice to her and even before he gives her the, you know, the um, bracelet and he says, oh, I, I want us to be, you know, on our second honeymoon and I, I want us to be, you know, grand and all this stuff. She falls for it. It's like that's all she wanted, you know, because she told him, you know, you haven't been my husband for a very long time, uh, except for the two little kids. Um, you know, it's like she doesn't want to really ruin people, but what else does she have to do? She's not getting any sex, so she has to start trouble. Yeah, for sure. She's a very lonely character. Um, and yeah, the end really shows that, how she responds uh, so immediately to, you know, her husband just 
expressing a bit of affection, buying her a bracelet. Maybe that's all she needed. I think that's all we all need sometimes. <laughs> Someone <laughs> buy a nice bracelet. And say bracelet. And say, you know, show some affection. Um, yeah, I mean, she just, everything changes about her face. Everything gets brighter or something, you know, she's more animated. And, oh, you know, the man who's supposed to love me finally is going to love me again. Yeah. Do you feel sorry for her? Do you, do we feel that she's... I do. I do feel sorry for her because these people are all humorless, miserable. When she walks in in the first scene, you know, with that. OK, I, I love that everybody's dressed for the southern climate, except for Joan, who swans in with this huge mink um, with the fox collar and says, oh, don't you all look so cozy together? In other words, they stop talking when she walks in the room because, you know, they're freezing her out still. I mean, how long has she been there and they're still freezing her out? Yeah, she's isolated. Um, and when you think about it from her perspective, you're right, they're horrible to her. So of course she's going to lash out. I would. <laughs> so other costumes that you're thinking of, um, the great gown when she makes the big entrance on the staircase, that is fabulous what about the one that's like it almost looks like molten lead that sheath that she wears that she slinks around in yeah it's like a dark silver the one where she lies on the bed <laughs> um there's one where she has a really long stole like a long fur stole that she uses to um brush barry sullivan's face while he sat at the dining table <laughs> which is hilarious <laughs> she slowly brushes it up against him um, there's there's got to be something Freudian about that. It has to mean something, uh, something I'm missing, but <laughs> <laughs> you feel like it means something. Something, something about lady parts. <laughs> um, there's an incredible look with a big A-line skirt. She wears a, a white blouse top and a huge dark green um, A-line skirt. Really, really beautiful, very... Um, and actually, a drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race, Chad Michaels, wore a dress that was an exact copy of that dress. Hmm. Um, oh, is that the one with the, the big bow, that one? Yeah, a big bow on the side, on the waist. Do you um, know, that, that was a big Oscar look a while ago. Um, that, like, Meg Ryan with that big taffeta skirt with the white shirt. Oh. I thought... That, you know, that to me, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's Joan Crawford and Queen Bee. But nobody said it at the time. So I thought maybe I was just reading into it. Yeah, the challenge was something to wear to an inauguration ball. So mm. it has a very 50s politician's wife look to it. Mm -hmm. Does she, um, I, I mean, I, I watch the drag race from time to time, but I'm not uh, a regular reviewer. Does she get referenced a lot, Joan? Yeah, she was actually done twice on Snatch Game, which is the challenge where the drag queens have to choose a celebrity to impersonate. Um, mm -hmm. The On the first occasion, on both occasions, uh, Mummy Dearest was the main, if not the only reference point, which is a shame. Mm. Um, the first one was by a drag queen called Mariah, who's terrible and had really, uh, really chalky contouring in her face, just looked awful. Joan would never have looked that bad. <laughs> um, Later on, um, she was done by a drag queen called Alyssa Edwards, who's hilarious. Um, 
but her Joan Crawford was very much, it was a recreation of this drag queen Erica Andrews, who did uh, who did a Mummy Dearest Joan Crawford impersonation back in the 90s, quite iconic. Um, so really, Alyssa was impersonating Erica Andrews, impersonating Faye Dunaway, impersonating Joan Crawford. Um, wow. So there's all these, you know, there's all these layers of impersonation and um, even when you think that the mummy dearest Joan Crawford is filtered through her films, um, this whole, yeah, our perception, of course, our perception of any actor or performer is, is uh, referenced through their films, through their, through their persona, but for Joan, there seems to be more layers than most, um, and more distortion. Um, as well as a bit more bitterness and uh, extremes of opinion, I suppose, in terms of what's the right way to respond to that. I think you're right about that. People become really invested in certain images and they don't want to, whether for good or ill, and they don't really want to hear anything that counters that. But, um, you know, I, I prepared for this episode. <laughs> I don't normally, but I, you know, I have on a full face of makeup. I got the steam pot out for my hair. I'm wearing heels and a dress, you know, because you just don't come at Joan. <laughs> it's less than your best. So, you know, she would want it that way. So, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I. I can't bear to be on these Joan Crawford Facebook groups because they always descend to arguments. Um, you know, there are people for whom you, you you can't really have a laugh about her in any way at all. Um, then there are people who for whom they only know Mummy Dearest and they only know you know a few jokes, and to him to them she's really just some something to be made fun of. Um, and I think both are annoying. Um, to me, it's not really a contradiction to enjoy someone as camp and to have fun with that whilst also um, appreciating them as a performer um, and I can see why to some people that looks like you're making fun of them um, but for me it's laughing with them not at them right I think that's the the big distinction there that you're you're you know enjoying them on multiple levels as you know you've pointed out before um so that it doesn't exclude one or the other it's not you're not laughing at her you're laughing with her um you know if I you know were to joke about how many people she slept with on this you know production <laughs> that doesn't mean you know I'm celebrating her because that was Joan she had a big sexual appetite it doesn't mean that I'm calling her cheap or you know floozy or something um you know she should get hers wherever she wants so yeah and some of her performances and her films uh this one in particular were over the top um and that is an element of camp, that uh, artificiality um, and over-the-topness. Um, you can enjoy that while still appreciating her as a great actress. She was. I mean, we've got everything here. We've got the beautiful glamour. We've got the despair um, and the, you know, sort of lost woman all alone beautiful the crying scenes you know when her eyes well up and then the tears fall like diamonds on her cheeks i mean i wish i could cry and look that good 
But then the scene where she smears the face cream on the mirror, coming so soon after you know, a tragedy, um, you know, the, the, the horrible scene of when they find Betsy Palmer, um, and then when they, you go to Joan, and then it, it is funny, the scene of her crying and smearing the face cream. Um, and it's funny because it's such an absurd thing to do. Um, I mean, who, do, who smears face cream on the mirror? Um, but also the way that the film immediately w- w- swings back to Joan. She's with the, another character has just died, and then again suddenly Joan is the centre of attention. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't really care about Betsy Palmer. <laughs> no, we don't because yeah. Joan is the star. <laughs> but you know that is such her, re- her a reaction. <laughs> her reaction is more important than the fact that Betsy Palmer has died. It is. <laughs> But I mean, that's such a theatrical way for her to renounce her vanity that I'm not going to look in the mirror anymore. I smear it with face cream so I don't have to see myself. I mean, in a way, that's a really interesting choice to say I've renounced the mirror. Um, But it's not like she shows up in the next scene without makeup. Right. No, of course not. Quite a fleeting (laughs) renunciation (laughs) of her vanity. Ah. I don't know. I, I think it's so sort of it's a, it's a moment it, that seems real, even if it's disconnected from an emotional anchor that's real. I don't know. Yeah, it seems sincere, but it's also a moment that creates a hilarious gift. <laughs> and I think it's fine to enjoy that on multiple levels. And I don't think that's unique to Jen. Um, you think of Diana Ross in Mahogany um, and the extreme campiness of that performance in that film doesn't take away from the fact that she's a great performer. Um, I don't think that it's making fun of, you know, Diana Ross to laugh at this film. I don't know. No, I, and I think, um, you know, your your favorite uh, camp film, if I'm correct, Scarface, uh, to <laughs> me is, is absurd and camp, and but in a good way, in that it is so over the top, like masculine machismo, that it's hilarious that, I remember um, walking by one of those, you know, places where you get the framed, um, you know, art, the cheap art stuff. And it had in this frame, it had a picture of Tony. It said, say hello to my little friend. It had a plastic little machine gun and a cigar like embedded in this wooden frame with Al Pacino's picture. And I thought, you know, some teenage boy is going to put that in his room or in his dorm room or something. And, you know, oh, like, I'm a tough guy, <laughs> like, you know, like Tony. And it's just hilarious, I think. Yeah, well, Scarface is like an opera. It has such a dramatic rise and fall structure. There's so much happening there. And just the visual, uh, there's just so much going on there. Um, but I think it adds a layer, of, a layer of camp because you can enjoy it as just a completely straight gangster film. It works on both of those levels, I think. And I think, to me, that's why it's so much fun. <laughs> I can I can see why, you know, you love it. Um, and I, I would, I, I think it's good, but I, you know, it's just Al Pacino. Now, Manny, like, yeah, I don't really it, see that with him. I don't see the campiness. As, it works as dad cinema, as well as, like, you know, also has Michelle Pfeiffer and you know, something for the gays. <laughs> As an ice princess queen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what Joan is here too, is the ice princess queen. And really, I can't get enough of them, you know. Oh, yeah. 
If a woman goes after what she wants, now the script tells us that's a bad thing, that she shouldn't be bold and she shouldn't go after what she wants, but she does. And, you know, I'm not, I would never say that that's um, something you should be punished for. And I, I don't think most people would either. So I'm wondering who these people are say, oh, she's so awful and she had it coming. No, she's fabulous and she deserves everything she wants. And if she wants to tread all over these men, let her. Well, that makes it extra interesting, I think, that Joan herself said that the character deserved to be killed. Um, you know, the Joan, that I suppose that's almost sad that uh, Joan herself felt that this character should be punished. That she was a monster. I don't know. I don't know if she really believed that, though. I mean, she said a lot of unkind things about her performances, but maybe she thought she was supposed to or that that was the right response. I mean, she looks like she's having so much fun. I, I, I find it hard to believe that she really doesn't endorse doing whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, she was generally a bad judge of her own films, I think it's fair to say. Oh, I mean, there's so many of her pictures that are wonderful that she slates, like Rain or Flamingo Road. Well, she hated Johnny Guitar. Um, oh, right, right. Well, I mean, you can't blame her, I guess, because of Mercedes. But, yeah, yeah. she can see how good that film is. Oh, that's a good example, yeah. Although she loved Torch Song, um, a film which you could argue is even camper than Queen Bee. And yet Joan just, you know, she was just happy to be back at MGM. She saw it as a good experience for her. Uh, she got to do a musical. She got to have the full colour treatment for the first time. So maybe for her it was tied up a lot in the way, in her experience of working on the film, maybe that, I don't know. Maybe that in box office as well, or, or you know, fans or views or something. Um, interesting to compare the two characters, actually, because Jenny Stewart in Torch Song uh, at the end is tamed by Michael Wilding. You know, she's, uh, she's a character who's also a complete bitch, who's just horrible to everyone around her all the time for apparently <laughs> no reason. Um, but whereas in Queen Bee, you know, she, she's killed at the end. In Torch Song, you know, she finds a man who, you know, well, tames her is how they describe it in the film. Well, I realize that that's how they describe it, but I think of it more as she goes with him because, you know, she gets to be thought of in this very romantic sense as the gypsy Madonna, and he will always see her as young. I mean, to me, that <laughs> that's very attractive right there. <laughs> he will never see you old. To him, you'll always be, you know, 25 or whatever. I mean, who would, who would want to pass that up, you know? Same thing in um, the end of, you know, Mr. Skeffington, when Claude Rains is pretty much blind, and he will only remember Betty Davis as when she was young and beautiful. I mean, that's, you know, that's as close to immortal as you can get. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection, actually. But um, it's absurd, this idea that, you know, because someone's blind, they won't know how old you are. Well, <laughs> that seems to be the implication. Well, you know, it's, it's you know, when he thinks of you, but never mind the saggy skin, I guess, or, you know, the, the creaky voice. But that's the other odd thing about Joan is that, 
there's one promotional uh, video. It was like an interview that was on YouTube. And I think it was for Flamingo Road or maybe it was something later. Maybe even uh, The Damn Don't Cry. And she did this interview. And I swear to God, her voice sounded younger than it had when she was younger. I don't know what it was about her voice, but she had, you know, I guess had trained herself to change her pitch or something that, you know what I mean? That she was so dedicated to, you know, being vital or appearing young that she even managed to to get her voice done to that same sort of extent. I don't know. It was interesting. Oh, I can easily believe it from someone who, you know, she worked, she worked to get rid of her Texas drawl early in life. Um, she always had a very, I suppose, slightly strange artificial voice. Um, and again, so much of what she did was her own creation. Her enunciation is fabulous in so many films. And there's a scene here where, um, you know, Jenny Stewart's, uh, you know, calling her out for being, you know, fake or, you know, self-obsessed or whatever. And how horrible she is. And Joan says, I was like you once, you know, young and innocent. And the way that she says innocent, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone pronounce it in just that way, that it was so, you know, each syllable was so perfectly enunciated. It was so clear and crisp. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm just lazy. But <laughs> um, yeah, no Marlon Brando-esque mumbling for her. She said what she meant to say. Yes. I mean, yes. for a Joan Crawford accent, though, my favorite is, uh, have you seen the Joan Crawford goes to the supermarket advert? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Pepsi it's ad. Really trippy one from the 60s. <laughs> um, and just the way she pronounces supermarket, like it's got a Y in it, like supermarket. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love her voice. There's another um, bit that she did. Um, it was on YouTube, and I, I can't find it, but where she's asked to define glamour. And she says it like this, glamour. Like, there's no R at the end, but it sounds better. And she says it's discipline plus applied arts. But the way she says it, it's so melodic. And so, um, you know convinced of what she of the truth of what she says you're like damn you know glamour <laughs> that's the most i'll pronouncing it <laughs> so matt anything else you want to say about queen bee before we wrap it up um just yeah it's a wonderful film um I have to wonder who was it for? You know, who was the target audience for this film? Um, oh, you know, that's a really good point. What do you think? I don't know. Um, because this was really, this was at the tail end of women's films, if not after, really after it. Um, I, I haven't been able to work out how well this film did at the box office. I can't really see that. I suspect it didn't do that well. 
See, I think this is definitely made for women, that women would want to see her acting, you know, so uh, selfishly and and just doing whatever she wants, because, you know, that's what we want to live vicariously through Joan, just like we saw her doing whatever she wanted in the 1930s. Um but I don't know, you know, with with the whole ending and the and that every other character hates her, would that really detract from an audience's pleasure? That's hard for me to read, I think. Yeah. I guess they've got to keep the husbands happy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You're oh, right. can, still, can this was this was tail end of the production code, but it was still there. And clearly, they couldn't have her go away unpunished. So yeah, so it play it it pays lip service, I think. So it it checks all the boxes for what you you know you have to ha- punish you know the transgressions that of her you know stealing men and acting selfishly and being responsible for people's death. But you know, is she really responsible for Carol's death? I mean, I don't think so. She slept with a guy ten years ago. I mean, that's a little extreme. Um, couldn't you just say, "I'm not going to marry you." Bye-bye. Well, I think so, but... I'll move out? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I get, you know, she had to be punished, but there are loads of, you know, the sort of uh, conservative endings that are tacked onto her pictures, but it doesn't mean that we don't love seeing her act badly throughout from, you know, far back as, say, Possessed, where she's shacked up as Gable's, you know, uh, kept woman, um, and then, you know, has a short time where she has to repent. But what, and I remember with that picture, one of the... um, you know, theater owners or somebody said, reported that a a young woman in the audience had said, I would live with him under any circumstances, (laughs) you know, talking about Gable and that, you know, here's Joan corrupting people saying it's, oh, it's okay to go out and do this. So they put on this conservative ending for most of her pictures, but that doesn't mean that that's, I think, what people are left with. They remember the part where she got diamond bracelets for, you know, being beautiful and they're our late to dinner because they're you know having sex like that's the good parts that's what you know you, you keep going back to for yeah i think that's true not just of jen but of a lot of films from that period um a lot of betty davis films for example i mean what do we remember from jezebel we remember her at the beginning of the film at her most rebellious we don't remember um the ending as, as well i think um Right. When she has to pay for her sins by going to die in a, you know, a colony of, um, you know, fevered, doomed people. Sure. I mean, the ending's important, but uh, the images that we remember are her pulling up her dress with the riding crop, her, you know, being rebellious and fabulous. And uh, <laughs> this is 1852, Dumplin'. <laughs> Not the Dark Ages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say if, if we're seeing it that way, then that's, you know, it's a fair guess that that's how other people did when the yeah. films first premiered. You know, the car crash at the end of Queen Bee uh, could almost be tacked on or could have easily had a different ending. Um, but what we remember is Joan stomping down those stairs and slapping people and <laughs> the hilarious one-liners. Um, that's why it's so much fun. 
Um, and and so, what is your favorite line? I think I know, but. Oh. Uh... <laughs> the one... says, Don't you look lovely, even in those tacky riding clothes? That's good, That's but. I, I nearly started the episode by saying, um, you know, asking you if you were ready for people now, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you had a, have you had a drink? Are you ready for people now? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's it's a it's a hilarious script. Um, very clever, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining me to talk about this film. You know, you can't. I, to me, there's no such thing as a bad Joan film. Like, no matter what the picture is, there's always something I get out of it from Joan. Whether it's a line delivery, the way she moves, the way she wears clothes, the way she um, gives death ray eyes to a man. Like, there's always something. And this has, you know, I think really multiple levels of what Joan did best on film in Queen Bee. I agree. It just delivers everything you could possibly want from one of her films. Um, even her most boring films, even, uh, you know, some of the silent films that maybe aren't so good. She's still just fascinating to watch on screen. Um, and in this, they just give her everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Join me next time when I talk about um, Maureen O'Hara in A Woman's Secret from 1949. Thanks very much. Bye.